The following sermon by Nelson Atwood was recorded at Noble Park Evangelical Baptist Church. For more information, please visit their website at www.noblebaptist.org.au. That's www.noblebaptist.org.au. I'm going to invite you to take your Bibles and turn to the book of Acts, Acts chapter 11. And as you're finding your place in the book of Acts in chapter 11, I want to quickly sketch in the context of our passage. You remember back in Acts chapter 7, we read of Stephen being violently murdered or martyred for his witness to Christ before the Sanhedrin. And then we read in chapter 8 of the violent persecution led by Saul and allowed by God against the church for God's purposes. And Luke stated that Saul ravaged the church. In chapter 9 we read how he breathed out threats and murder against the disciples. In chapter 22 we saw how Paul himself, or we will see how Paul himself, relates how he bound and imprisoned and even put to death those who followed Christ and the way. In chapter 8, verse 14, Luke recounts how the apostles still in Jerusalem sent Peter and John to Samaria following Philip's evangelistic work. And so it's fairly clear at least some of the apostles were still in Jerusalem. And it was the disciples who were mostly experiencing that persecution and being driven out. And it was the disciples... They were going out, witnessing, and speaking the gospel of Christ to all everywhere they went. And then from chapters 8 through chapter 11 and verse 18, we saw how the Samaritans were reached through Philip's gospel witness. We saw the Ethiopian. He heard the gospel and took it back with him to Africa. The coastal regions were reached by Peter after Saul's conversion, and the persecution slowed down and ceased, and the church enjoyed peace. And then we saw over the last couple of weeks, Cornelius and his Roman Gentile friends are reached with the gospel. And so the third and final line in the expansion of the gospel is crossed. The gospel has gone out from Jerusalem, firstly to the Jews in Galilee, Judea and the coastal regions. It's secondly gone out to the half-Jew, half-Gentile Samaritans. And now thirdly, it's gone to the Gentiles completely with the Romans And all that remains is to take it to the ends of the earth. And we've been spending uh, 2,000 years pursuing that goal. Now in chapter 11 and verse 19, Luke reaches back and he kind of ties the persecution against the disciples in chapter 8 to another new phase in the spread of the gospel. And it's to take it to the Greeks, the Hellenists and the Gentiles. The Romans are Gentiles too, of course, but take it to a a new area. The stories in 11, 19 to 12 and verse 25 kind of serve as a transition from the prominence of Peter as the first major character and leader of the church to the rise of Saul, who will be called Paul, as the second major character in the book of Acts. It also serves to introduce us to the Antioch church, which will be the center and the springboard of evangelistic missionary work, not from Jerusalem anymore, but mostly from Syria and Antioch. Well, let's read the passage, 
chapter 11, verse 19, working down to verse number 30. I'm reading from a New American Standard Bible. You can follow along on the little sheet if you like or in your own Bible translation as you prefer. The Word of God says, So then those who were scattered because of the persecution that occurred in connection with Stephen made their way to Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the Word to no one except to Jews alone. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who came to Antioch and began speaking to the Greeks also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a large number who believed turned to the Lord. The news about them reached the ears of the church at Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas off to Antioch. Then when he arrived and witnessed the grace of God, he rejoiced and began to encourage them all with resolute heart to remain true to the Lord. For he was a good man and full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and considerable numbers were brought to the Lord. And he left for Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. And for an entire year they met with the church and taught considerable numbers, and the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. Now at this time, some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them, named Agabus, stood up and began to indicate by the Spirit that there would certainly be a great famine all over the world. And this took place in the reign of Claudius. And in the proportion that any of the disciples had means, each of them determined to send a contribution for the relief of the brethren living in Judea. And this they did, sending it in charge of Barnabas and Saul to the elders. Let's just take a moment to pray. Loving Father, this morning again as we are before you with the word of God open before us. Father God, we cry out to you that you would incline our hearts to your word and not to dishonest gain. We cry out, O God, that you would open the eyes of our understanding, open the eyes of our hearts to hear what you would say to each of us through your word. Father, we cry out to you for your help, for we surely need it. And we ask it in Jesus' precious name. Amen. What struck me as I read and studied through this was that the men and women God used were not supermen and superwomen. They're ordinary men and women with ordinary lives, ordinary talents, abilities, relationships, hopes, dreams, and wishes. They're so ordinary that you and I can relate to them. They're so ordinary that when we see the great works being done by them, we immediately realize it's not them, it's God. God is the one who's doing the work here in Antioch, in Jerusalem, in churches all over the world, and especially here at Noble Park Baptist Church. God is the one who does the work. God does His work, and He delights at the same time to use ordinary people to do it. God works through ordinary men and women to build His churches. And the response that God requires of us in this is faith. Believing his word and trusting his person. It's submission to him. That's the big need, the big thing that God requires. It's submission to him and to his will revealed in his word. It's obedient cooperation with him as he does the work in us for his good pleasure. He wills and works for his good pleasure, as the Bible tells us. 
Well, in our text, we can see four stages in church planting and church growth. This is kind of a new thing for the book of Acts. The churches up until now have met in the synagogues or met in the temple courts in different places. But now there's a new, almost purely Gentile church being established. Yes, there are some uh, Jewish people involved, but this is a new thing. And so in this transition period, Luke records for us how this church is planted, how it grows, how it's established, and how it begins to minister. And we can see those four stages. First of all, there's the planting of a church through witnesses. Secondly, there's the growth of a church through encouragement. Thirdly, there's the establishment of a church through solid biblical teaching. And fourthly, there's a ministry of a church through the disciples in whatever means that God has given them. Now, I got done last Sunday morning and uh, Poovin came up to me and he said, wow, over an hour. Well, actually, it was only 59 minutes, so it wasn't quite over an hour. I thought, oh, that's no good. I can't do that. So I started preparing this message. I thought, oh, it'll be short. It'll only be 40 minutes. Then I got preparing a bit longer. I thought, well, I'll just cut off the last point because that'll keep it to 40 minutes. And I kept preparing. I thought, well, no, actually, I probably better cut off the third point. So it'll only be two points, and that'll be 40 minutes. And by the time I'm done today, you're almost certainly going to wish I'd cut off the second point as well. I'm just kept it to the 40 minutes. But hopefully it won't be that long. We want to look, first of all, this week at the planting of a church through witnesses and the growth of a church through encouragement. God's doing His work through ordinary people like you and me. Nothing special about us, nothing special about them. So first of all, God's births His churches through ordinary gospelers or ordinary witnesses, people going out and speaking the truth of the gospel wherever God takes them. Notice the people God uses Their witnesses scattered through Saul's persecution. And beloved, I confess that when I was studying, I went right over that statement until later on in my studies. And it kind of hit me as I was reading the book of Hebrews, a verse there kind of tied into it, that these people had gone through all sorts of difficulty in that scattering. Their homes were invaded. Their loved ones were taken away to prison. Some of their loved ones had been killed by this fanatic named Saul for their testimony and their witness for Christ. That that verse in Hebrews describes how those Jewish believers endured a great conflict of suffering. They were made a public spectacle. They showed sympathy to those who were in prison. And listen to this. They joyfully accepted the seizure of their properties because they belonged to Jesus Christ. So these believers that go out preaching the gospel, they're scattered, but it isn't going on vacation. It isn't picking up and saying, you know, I like the looks of uh, the eastern suburbs of Melbourne. I'll just move over there and, and I'll establish myself there and God will use me there. No, they were scattered through persecution, through difficulty and struggle. And yet, that statement that just kind of hit me, they joyfully accepted the seizure of their property. That's Hebrews 10, verses 32 to 34. Listen, for those Jewish disciples and believers in Christ who were scattered by persecution, it was no walk in the park. They spread out, speaking of Christ, knowing that having already done so, it cost them greatly, and yet they continued to do so anyway. How do people like that? How do people do that? 
They're not being by being super Christians. It's ordinary people who are filled with God's Spirit, who are compelled by Christ's love for them and by their love for Him. It's ordinary people who have surrendered themselves to do the will of God wherever and however He moves and sends them. The challenge is, brothers and sisters, are we, just as ordinary as them, are we willing to allow God to use us in that same costly way? Time out already. You want to serve the Lord? I assure you of a couple of things. It will cost you something. And I'll add, it'll cost you a lot. Because that's how the Lord works. It's in seeing the struggle and the suffering that we encounter and endure in serving the Lord that God displays His grace and His glory through us as He uses, to use the old phrase, He uses cracked and broken pots and vessels to spread His gospel. He does it so that He gets the glory and we enjoy all the benefit. But it will cost you something. Now we see that these disciples began to spread out. They spoke the gospel to the Jews only. The early believers saw themselves as a distinct group within Judaism, and hence they communicated the gospel to Jews. Jesus was proclaimed to Jews as the Lord and Messiah. Peter, preaching at Pentecost in Acts 2.36, said, Let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him, Jesus, both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. In Acts 5, verse 42, the apostles every day in the temple and from house to house, they kept right on teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. These Jewish disciples spread out preaching Jesus as Christ to the Jews. And we see in verse 9, that, uh, sorry, verse 19, they traveled north to Phoenicia, then north and west off the coast to an island place called Cyprus, and then back onto the mainland and further north to the western Syrian coastal city of Antioch. Now, Phoenicia, as I understand it, represents modern-day Lebanon, and Cyprus's history is, includes a lot of Grecian and Mycenaean influence going back at least as far as 1400 B.C. But by the first century in the time of Acts, it included a fairly large Hellenistic Jewish community and occupants. And Bar- Barnabas, sorry, I went to say Barabbas and Barnabas at the same time I came up with something else. Barnabas himself is a Jewish Levite from Cyprus and these Unnamed, unknown to any but God, they came and they spoke the gospel in Antioch. Why would God choose Antioch? Well, Antioch of Syria is one of 16 cities with that same name. It was built around 300 BC by a Syrian emperor named Seleucus in honor of his father Antiochus. It's located on a very nice fertile plain in a western bend of the Orontes River that terminates at the Mediterranean Sea. It's ancient times. Population reached 500,000 people. So it was, by those standards, a gigantic city. And because of its location, Antioch is a busy cosmopolitan center. It's trade and religious ideas and practices with high levels of intellectual and political life. None of the Romans... Antioch received beautiful public works and harbor improvements and special trade advantages But besides its truly high culture, it also indulged itself in the degrading practices 
sorry, <clears throat> degrading practices of strange fertility religions, brutal, brutal blood-sporting events, and a whole history of mystery religions. You know, you read about Antioch, and you think about all the things that are going on there, and you just look over the fence at Melbourne and go, wow, it, it looks a lot like Melbourne. As well as all that, there is a large Jewish community in Antioch. That's where Barnabas comes from. And as we're going to see, Antioch will play a very important role in the early church. Acts 13 records that the first missionaries were sent from Antioch. And from the 3rd century to the 8th century, Antioch was a very important center for the development of Christian theology. But here in our text, you ever stop and wonder where did it all start? Well, here in our text, we have the start of what built in Antioch. Some unnamed unknown, ordinary people that came and spoke the gospel to the Greeks there. Notice the message that God uses. These disciples were speaking the ordinary, speaking to ordinary people, but they were speaking about Jesus. They were preaching Jesus as Lord. And Luke doesn't go into all the details of their gospel message, but we can be certain that it was similar to the ones that Paul and Peter spoke to Gentile communities and Jewish communities. What would that be? That the one true God of the Jews is the only true God. That God had created all mankind in holiness and righteousness, but man in willful rebellion and disobedience to God was a sinner. And man left to his own devices stands to face the unmitigated, unrestrained wrath of a righteous, angry, offended God. And that message is exactly the same for today. But God, this is the great message of the gospel. But God, from a desire to glorify His name, to display His grace to all mankind, to redeem a mankind, He sent Jesus Christ, His only Son. And Jesus was born and lived in sinless perfection. He'd been delivered over to wicked and cruel men who crucified him. He died and been buried in a borrowed tomb. But God raised him up from the dead, declaring him to be the Son of God with power. God has appointed him to be the judge of the living and the dead. Jesus as Lord has ascended to the Father's right hand. Jesus as Lord and judge is returning to judge all mankind and to those who submit to him in faith and repentance, there is the promise of life, life eternal. To those who refuse to submit, there would be condemnation. And this is the message of the gospel that they preach to these Greek-speaking Gentiles. But notice also in verse 21, we have the power that's at work to turn the hearts of men. And it's not you and I. It wasn't them. It was the hand of the Lord at work there. It's not the style and dynamics of the presentation of the message. It is the power of God, the hand of the Lord that does the work of changing the hearts of men. Praise God. It is the hand of the Lord at work. I'm reminded, I just can't stop thinking about it. I actually cut it out of my notes, but I'm going to tell it anyway. You remember Elijah? 
Up on Mount Carmel, right? 400 prophets of Baal. They do their whole thing, waste hours trying to get the Baal to answer. Of course, he's asleep or busy and he can't answer. And finally, Elijah gathers the nation to himself and he builds the altar and he arranges the wood and he takes the sacrifice and he puts it on top and he says, go get four pots of water. They go get them. Pour them out over top of the whole thing. Three times, 12 pots of water are poured all over this sacrifice. It's drenched and soaking. And before he does it, does anything more, he cries out to God to have God show the people of Israel that he has turned their hearts back towards him. And as he's praying, fire falls on the sacrifice. It burns up the sacrifice, the wood, the stones, and licks up the water all around the outside edges. It's the hand of God at work. Praise God it's not left up to us. In our presentation, our flashy styles, our gimmicky products, however we can come up with to spread the gospel, we simply called to preach the pure, simple gospel of Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And it's the hand of God at work that turns men to Himself. What's required of us? Faithfulness, obedience, submission, and preaching the word however we do it. I love the fact that Poovin often prays on Sunday morning. If he does a pastoral prayer, he mentioned it's not about the style of the presentation. I can't remember his exact words, but he does it. And I'm like, yes, you're so right. doesn't matter whether you can bellow like a bull like or I can or you just whisper quietly. It, that's not the point. It's the power of God at work that changes the hearts of men. Notice also the goal of speaking the gospel is to turn people to the Lord. It's to turn listeners from serving themselves, their idols, their sinful nature, and to turn them to the Lord. So God is the substance of the gospel. He is the hope of the gospel, and He's the goal of the gospel, turning men and women to Himself. Paul said the same thing in Lister. You remember the story? He preaches with a great voice. And all of a sudden, all the people of Lister come running to him, and they've got sacrifices, they've got bits and pieces, and, and they're going to offer sacrifices to Barnabas and Paul. And Paul says, what are you doing these things for? We are also men of the same nature as you, and we preach the gospel to you that you should turn from these vain things and turn to the living God. Paul again in Acts 26, 18 And giving his defense of his ministry to Grippus said that Jesus had sent him the Gentiles, sent him to the Gentiles to open their eyes so that they should turn from darkness to light, from the dominion of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who have been sanctified by faith in God. The hand of the Lord was with these unnamed, unknown Hellenistic Jews who spoke the gospel of Jesus as Lord to the Antiochian Greeks and large numbers of believers turned to the Lord. The work was and is God's, but the tools he uses are ordinary men and women just like you and me. Listen. One of my favorite verses in the Bible, and I know you've heard me say it over and over and over again, it's Philippians 2.13. It is God who is working in you both to will and to do for His good pleasure. It's God's work in us. It's God's work to plant churches and He calls and moves us to be involved in that work. It's God who scatters and disperses us through various tools and devices. It is God 
who compels his disciples to speak and preach Jesus Christ as Lord to the Jews and Gentile, wherever he's placed us. It's God whose powerful hand is with us as we speak and preach the simple yet massively profound message of Jesus Christ and him crucified. It's God's powerful hand at work that the listener turns from sin and self and unrighteousness and turns to Jesus Christ. So that whether in large numbers or small, it is his doing that turns him. And brothers and sisters in Christ, that to me is one of the most freeing things in the world to know. My simple responsibility, our, our simple responsibility is to preach the message of Jesus Christ and Him crucified and let God do the work of saving the sinner. Our responsibility as a church and as individuals is to preach the biblical message. Ordinary men and women, however and wherever God has placed us, to simply speak the truths of Jesus and live that truth out so that everybody can see that the reality has changed us, that God has changed us by that reality of the gospel. And God does the work of saving people. Notice, secondly, God grows His church through ordinary encourages. And we see that in verses 22 to 24. Let's read again. The Bible says that the news about them reached the ears of the church at Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas off to Antioch. Then when he arrived and witnessed the grace of God, he rejoiced and began to encourage them all with resolute heart to remain true to the Lord. For he was a good man and full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and considerable numbers were brought to the Lord. In verse 22, it's by God's doing that news of their response to the gospel makes its way back to the parent church in Jerusalem. And so Jerusalem sends Barnabas the encourager to them. It's not suspicion, not a power struggle that moved them. It was for the purpose of connection and encouragement and help. And church planting, as I discovered the hard way, must always take place according to the principles of discipleship. The seasoned, mature church and leadership watches over and helps and encourages, and occasionally they step in to correct and refocus. But by God's doing, the elders in Jerusalem send Barnabas to Antioch. The question is, who is this Joseph called Barnabas? Well, in Acts chapter 4, we discover he was a Jewish Levite from Cyprus. He became one of the earliest Christian disciples in Jerusalem. In Acts chapter 4 and verse 36, his name is changed, or sorry, it's recorded as Joseph, but was surnamed Barnabas, Barnabas by the apostles, and it's translated meaning son of encouragement or son of exhortation and consolation. So he had a particular gift for that. In Acts 9, verse 27, he was the one to introduce Saul and Paul to the apostles after Saul's conversion, while everybody's afraid of Saul. In Acts 13, he and Saul were set apart by the Holy Spirit to go on their missionary work, which began, interestingly enough, with their traveling to Seleucia and then sailing across to Barnabas' homeland of Cyprus. He goes back there as part of his early missionary endeavors. In Acts 14 and verse 14, Luke records him as one of two apostles, plural. So by Luke's writing, we can make the the assumption 
the conclusion that he is an apostle. In Acts 15, verse 12, at the Jerusalem Council, Barnabas defended the claims of the Gentile Christians to be a part of the people of God, and he did so by testifying to God's performing of signs and wonders among the Gentiles. Neither Barnabas nor Saul or Paul were perfect. They were just ordinary men. And sadly, in Acts 15, we see that owing to a dispute with Paul over John Mark, these two brother missionaries part company. But you know what's really cool? Barnabas takes John Mark, right? That's the one they're arguing over. We're going to see this in a few months anyway, but it's worth the preview. Barnabas takes John Mark, and Paul takes Silas, and they go in different directions. Way later, Paul's in prison, and you know what he says to Timothy? Send John Mark to me, because he's useful to me. What happened between then and and Barnabas and the dispute and them leaving? Barnabas has invested time and energy and teaching and encouragement into John Mark's life. And all of a sudden, John Mark, from being a disputed young fellow that they want to put behind them, he's now useful to Paul. I think, wow, that's great. That's the work of a quiet, behind-the-scenes encourager that comes alongside somebody who everybody else thinks has no possibility, puts her arm around their shoulders, and begins to teach them and encourage them and strengthen them with the Word of God and makes them useful. Sorry, God makes them useful, but they invest time to that end. And I, I just can't stop thinking about one person in my life, a guy named Uncle Jack, which you've heard me mention over and over again. Uncle Jack, who looked at this young guy who was always in trouble with the elders, you couldn't imagine that, I'm sure, and uh, came alongside and said, would you like to know how to study the Bible? And I said, boy, would I ever. And he took me alongside and started teaching me, encouraging me. And men and women, I'm jumping over my message around, but that doesn't matter. There is a tremendous need for encouragers like Barnabas to go alongside those that the church as a whole might look at them and think, they'll never amount to anything. Writes them off. But Barnabas comes alongside and through patient working, encourages and builds them up and makes them useful for Christ. Moving on. Tradition records for us that uh, Barnabas was the founder of a church in Cyprus and also the church of Milan, and he was martyred for his faith on Cyprus at Salamis in AD 61. But you know, we read the text and others that speak about Barnabas. The one thing we can see that he was far from being your typical type A entrepreneurial pioneering super achiever. Nothing wrong with those people, but that wasn't Barnabas. Barnabas was an ordinary bloke used by God and useful to God. He was followed Christ as one of Christ's disciples. He was happy to take a back seat to others, namely Paul. He was known for his encouraging, exhorting ministry that just displayed the love of Christ to those around him. He quickly engaged and included others in God's work, which we'll see in this chapter here, investing time and effort in them to see them useful to God also. He was a man of God who saw what God was doing in the most unlikely of people and got involved to help, to encourage, and to exhort. Praise God for a whole pile of men out there like Barnabas. May God make us more like Barnabas. 
willing to get alongside and encourage. He was, as Luke describes him here in our text, a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and full of faith. And all three of those descriptions are possible only because of the presence and the work of the Holy Spirit in his life. What is, which is such a great encouragement to, to all of us to read that, to see his life, especially those who are not so type A and not so super achieving, but are much more like the mediocre type of people that most of us are. Listen, it is not personality and talents and ability and special personal gifting that God uses in men and women. It is God displaying the glory of His grace, working through the unlikely ones. Did you ever study some of Jesus' disciples? As, as one, more than one person said, if I had been the Lord, I would not have picked them, which is a wonderful saying of, way of saying, praise God, we are not the Lord. He picked the most. There's a great little thing you can find and read. It's uh, Judean business community writes a letter to Jesus of Nazareth to give him a report on the personality profiles of all of his disciples he has chosen. And every single one, all 11, are written off as not worth it. Don't waste your time. Hopeless, you know, ambitious. And then they say at the very end of it, there is, however, one, one disciple you've chosen that shows remarkable abilities above all the rest, and that's Judas Iscariot. In other words, the world's business ideas pick always the wrong people. And God loves to choose and use those who are the most unlikely of people for His purposes and His glory. Why? So that God's grace shines through. Praise God He uses ordinary people because that's all of us. People ask me, like, I get meet up once in a while or you talk to people when you're doing your thing, and, and they say, well, what do you do for a living? Oh, I'm a pastor. Oh, what does that mean? And I explain that to them. And they say, well, where do you serve? I said, Noble Park Baptist Church. And they say, well, what that's, what's that church like? And I use the same expression every time. We're just an ordinary bunch of people that love the Lord and get together to worship and serve. Oh, okay. You always get a strange response after that. It's not personality, it's not talents, it's not abilities, it's not special personal gifting that God uses in men and women. It is God displaying the glory of His grace, working through the unlikely ones. We, like Barnabas, are useful to God because of His working in us. It is God who saved us. It's God who filled us with His Holy Spirit. It's God who applied Christ's righteousness to us. It's God who gave us the gifts of faith and repentance. It's God who works in us both to will and to do for His good pleasure. It's God who scatters and sends us and leads us and places us and opens some doors and closes other doors that He might use us for His glory. You know the wonderful truth that goes alongside of that? When God uses us like that, we know fulfillment and joy like nothing else. And life is so much easier, right? Wrong. Life is hard when you serve the Lord. But it's a joyful heart. It's a a heart that's sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. It's a life of difficulty. I'm not going to hide that. I'm not going to stand up here and tell you that being a Christian and following Christ is a life of wonderful ease and pleasure and all good things. It is all good things. 
It is enjoying the pleasures of God in His presence, but you'll enjoy being scattered, your homes and properties stolen and burned, your loved ones imprisoned, and all of that. You say, why would, I, why would you say that to us on Sunday morning? That's not very encouraging, Nelson. No, but it's the truth of the Word of God. And I go back to what the writer of Hebrews said. They joyfully accepted the seizure of their properties. They were scattered, not with money to look back on, not with homes and properties still back in Jerusalem to go back to one day. It was all gone. And they went out with nothing. You read Hebrews 11, describing those who go out and serve the Lord, living in dens and holes in the ground, clothed with animal skins and all that kind of thing. That's what it meant to serve the Lord for them. Listen. Notice also, we're going to move on here, that Barnabas witnessed the grace of God at work. He arrives there. This is verse number 23. When he arrived and witnessed the grace of God, he rejoiced. God opened his eyes to see God's grace at work in these newly saved, former idol-worshipping, Greek-speaking men and women. And listen, brothers and sisters, it takes a work of God's Spirit to see God's grace at work around us. It's always easy to see what's missing, what's deficient, what's out of place, what's wrong. Pardon me, but how quick we are, and by we, I mean me, how quick I am to see what's lacking, what's wrong, instead of what's right. How slow we are to see God's grace truly at work. Wes was sharing a story with me a couple of weeks ago about a young fellow that got saved in their home church back in, I think it was back in South Africa. And he struggled with different addictions. And he had big ones and little ones. And someone came to Wes and said, you've got to talk to that guy about his, one of the little ones. And Wes said, slow down. He's dealing with the big things. You know, you'll get there. Be patient. God's grace is at work in him. Brothers and sisters in Christ, part of being an encourager is recognizing God's grace at work in each other and rejoicing when we see that grace, even when we see things that maybe we don't like and we would like to see changed. But we rejoice to see that God's grace is at work. These Gentile believers coming to faith in Christ, not knowing much about the gospel yet, are slowly growing. And, and Barnabas arrives and says, praise God that this work is already begun. By God's doing, Barnabas witnessed God's grace at work. And Barnabas encouraged and exhorted them to remain faithful to the Lord. In a more literal translation, it reads, He rejoiced and encouraged or exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with a steadfast purpose and a resolute heart. Notice, by the way, his encouraging, exhorting ministry is explained by Luke as the result of his godly character. Verses 23 and 24, you look what it says, um, midway through verse 23, to encourage them all with resolute heart to remain true to the Lord, for he was a good man and full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. In other words, the outflow of his character as a godly man was why he saw that that grace in them and why he began to encourage and exhort. And what it means is his ministry of exhortation wasn't just a shallow cheerleader. Rah, rah, you can do it. Yes, you can. Yes, you can. He didn't do that. (laughs) It's 
ridiculous, right? I was going to do the dance of the cheerleader, but I thought, no, that would get somebody upset, so I don't. But he didn't get up there and just cheerlead them. He did something that was far deeper than that. The manner of their remaining faithful to the Lord is with a steadfast purpose and with a resolute heart. It's a determination not to walk away, not to drift away. And brothers and sisters, it's got to start there in our hearts. It's got to be with a determined heart that we will remain true. Now, how do you, how do we develop a determined, resolute heart in others? How do you and I encourage or impart courage to someone? Courage comes from knowing certain unshakable truths. Like the general before the battle. Uh, Some of you may have watched some of these old uh, movies of uh, great old, I call them hack and whack movies. There are lots of sword work and axes and all kinds of stuff and there's blood going everywhere. And right before the, the battle starts... The generals ride back and forth on their horse in front of all these probably pretty scared troops who stand there waiting for the battle to begin, knowing that some of them are going to come out with no arm, no leg, or possibly no life. And he rides back and forth, and he cheers them on. He whips them up. What's he say? There's more of us than them. What's he say? we got bigger, harder-hitting cannons than they do. we got better intelligence, better armor. We're braver, stronger, bigger than they are. He speaks an exaggerated truth to impart courage to his troops. We impart courage and develop determined hearts by infusing truth into their hearts and minds. Now, time out again. When I say we, what I mean is we do the speaking, God imparts the courage. But our part is to do the speaking. So what do we say? How do we impart courage? How do we exhort men and women to stay faithful, to be encouraged? What do we do? What do we say? I started thinking through some examples, and this is what I came up with. You ready? This is a great one. You're going to love this. Number one, you can't do it on your own. Do you feel encouraged? You should. Because the truth is, you can't do it on your own. But... The great truth is God has filled you with His Spirit and He is at work in you and through you to sustain you to the end. You impart a determined heart and courage by bringing the promises of Scripture. God is faithful who began a good work in you and He will complete it. So when you see that young person, that young believer who's struggling and he can't seem to overcome certain things and his growth seems so slow, you get alongside them and you say, Hey, you know what? I promise you, you can't do it by yourself, but God is at work in you, and He began this good work in you, and He's going to finish it. Trust in Him. Submit to His Word and keep going. Take another step. Second great truth, you won't last two seconds on your own in this spiritual life. Do you feel encouraged? It's true. You won't. But, but, God is working the surpassing greatness of His power toward you. It's the same power He worked when He raised Christ from the dead. That's how you're going to make it through this whole spiritual life. 
That's how you're going to make it. God began the work in you to make you alive. God will finish the work that he's begun all the way to the end of your life until Christ returns. And Barnabas faithfully exhorted and encouraged these newly saved brothers and sisters. And the result we can see in verse 24, that considerable numbers were brought to the Lord as he got alongside and encouraged. Now, as we're going to see next week, there's something far more solid and serious needed. He needed to go and get Paul and bring him back to Antioch to, to solidly teach and encourage and build up the church through solid teaching. That's absolutely critical and necessary. But we're going to see that next week. So come on back next week. Listen, here's the point. We're going to wrap it up with this. God used unnamed, unknown men to preach Jesus. I was thinking about this this morning. God used an unnamed, unknown Methodist farmer who decided to go to church in a little suburb of London and a young fellow named Charlie walked in the back door, and the Methodist farmer, because nobody else showed up to preach, and he got up, and, and, and Charlie said his sermon was so stupid, all he could do was repeat the verse and emphasize each word in turn all the way through the verse. And that Methodist farmer, who I have no doubt was a godly man, saw Charlie struggling in the back row, and he pointed at him and called him out in front of everybody in the room, you young man. And he applied the gospel directly to Charlie. Who is he? Who's Charlie? Anyone want to guess? Charles Adam Spurgeon. Yeah. Unknown, unnamed. Nobody has ever been able to figure out who that guy was. He just disappeared in history. But one man's faithfulness, he wasn't the smartest. Spurgeon himself called him stupid, right? (laughs) But you know what? He faithfully determined to serve the Lord that day in whatever way he could. And he got up and he read a verse and he just emphasized the words of the verse. And God powerfully used that moment to open Spurgeon's eyes. And all that he'd been reading and studying sunk in at one moment and he realized the truth of the gospel and he was saved. God uses unnamed, unknown people to speak the words of Jesus to plant churches. God used Barnabas, an ordinary bloke, to encourage and exhort and strengthen the small, newly saved believers, the little group there, who'd begun to form into a church in Antioch. God always uses ordinary people because that's all there is. We're all just ordinary people. And through ordinary people... Sorry, God uses ordinary people because through ordinary people who are empowered by the Almighty God to do what only God can do, He gets the glory and we get all the benefit. Brothers and sisters in Christ, we may not be in a church plant situation, not yet. Hopefully one day as this church grows by God's grace, we'll get there. But at this moment... For right here, for right now, there's a tremendous need for spirit-filled, faith-filled, ordinary men and women to encourage and exhort one another to remain true to the Lord with a determined heart. So how do we do that? We take what we already have, the truth of the Word of God. We pray and we plead with God for wisdom, for direction, to be led by the Spirit, to those who need that exhortation and encouragement. We speak the truth of God that has its own power to encourage, to exhort, and sometimes, unbeknownst to us, to gently rebuke and correct our brother and sister in Christ. 
come alongside. We link arms together with those who are struggling and downcast and weary in the journey, and we look to see the grace of God that is already working, and we encourage with truth. Listen. God does his work, to wrap all this up. God does his work, and he delights to use ordinary people. Well, what, what's our response to this? You say, God does the work, it's all of God, so, so what, about, what do I do? What's my response to this? How do I react and, and, and go on from this? Number one is faith. I said this at the beginning. It's faith, believing his word and trusting God in his person. It's recognizing that when the difficult time comes and when the scattering comes and all that, it's not just the enemy rising up against us. It's God's hand at work to move us and put us where he wants us. My own personal experience, I had a little cabinet-making business back in Canada, and in 2009, it was doing this, going up. I had employees, I had work, I had more work than I could cope with. I was trying to find ways to get it all done. And in all the middle of all this, we started thinking about what we were really doing, what was the point of all this. And I remember walking out my front garage door of the shop and saying, Lord, I'll happily push all my machines out into the street if you'd open doors for me to serve you full-time. My business did this and came down again, like hard. And by 2010, in early April, Heather and I were chatting, and I just I wanted to serve the Lord. I wanted to preach all the time. I was serving the Lord there in, in itinerant ministry, but I wanted to do this. And I said, Heather, wouldn't it be so cool if God could open doors for us to do ministry in Australia? And she said, well, I've been thinking and praying about that. And this is now 11, 12 years later. Here we are. And by the way, I did push all those machines out into the street, in case you're wondering. And a missionary came and took them all with him and used them for a ministry up in the north co- northern parts of British Columbia. What's the point? The point is simply this. It's faith. It's believing God and trusting God. It's stepping out when everything seems to go completely pear-shaped and we're wondering, what went wrong? And the answer is nothing. God's at work. And God uses those moments like COVID, like all those other things that we didn't expect and we don't want. And even the the coming uncertainties that all the the naysayers in the paper are talking about, all the economic problems that are looming over our heads. Oh, no. But you know what? Our God is still in control. And when Saul started tearing into homes and dragging people out, God was in control. And when God started driving the disciples out of the city and sending them off to far-off regions, places like Antioch and other places, God was still in control. What we need, what He requires of us is faith. He requires submission to Him and His will. And you know what? Faith is difficult. But submission, now that's where it hits the road, isn't it? It's submitting myself to his will. It's Barnabas submitting himself to God's will. He wants to serve in Jerusalem, the big church, I'm just assuming. And the elders say, off you go to Antioch. There's work that needs to be done. And he goes up to a little group. And before you know it, one year had passed. And he and, and Paul are heading off to be missionaries. And before you know it, many years have gone by. And he's planting churches. And, the, and the work, God's work is carrying on. And brothers and sisters, the reality is you and I can't see what's going to happen this afternoon. 
But God has a plan. And God is using us who are ordinary men and women filled with the Spirit, trusting Him and submitting to His will. And I'm not ignorant of the fact that submission may come extremely painfully. That submission may cost you something that you're going to struggle with letting go of. And it comes with obedient cooperation. When we see what God is doing in our hearts, we see what God is working around us, and we obediently cooperate with His will and His work in us. And that's how God works. And it's a wonderful hope that we have. It's a wonderful hope that He is in control. He knows what He's doing. He knows where He's taking us, and He knows the purposes He has in mind as He does so. God uses ordinary men and women. I have no idea if another Charles Spurgeon-like person is sitting in this room. God knows. But God is in control, and we trust Him. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we just give thanks again for your grace at work. Father, we thank you and we praise you that you use ordinary men and women to accomplish your work. Father, we thank you and we praise you for your grace to us when bringing us to know the Lord Jesus Christ as our Savior and bringing us, Father, into contact with the gospel. Father, we thank you for the gifts of faith, of repentance, of the filling of the Holy Spirit. Father, we cry out to you for help that we would live our lives by faith, believing the word of God and trusting you, throwing ourselves entirely on you. Father, help us. Father, help that person in this room this morning who knows the call of God on their lives and is wrestling with the issue of submission. Father, I cry out to you that by the power of the Holy Spirit, by the word of the living God, that you would minister to that person's heart and mind to bring them, O God, to submit. Father, help us all. Each of us, O God, is facing things that we have no idea about that you know. Father, you know what is around the corner. We don't even know what's going to happen before the day's out. Father, help us, we pray, O God, to submit to you, to follow you faithfully, that when you scatter, we go and we speak the name of Jesus as we go. Father, we cry out to you for your help for this church. We give thanks again, O God, for this time of worship and fellowship together around the Lord Jesus. And Father, we just pray for your blessing. And we give thanks and do so in Jesus' precious name. Amen.